0: Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the February 2024 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club podcast. Uh, Again, thank you to our sponsors, Limer Education and ESO, for making it possible for us to be here today and discuss this research. I'm Remley Crow, and I am joined today by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we are also very fortunate today to have with us from the authorship team of the paper that we're going to be reviewing, we have Dr. Lewis Fornage and Dr. Lawrence Brown. So special welcome. And as a reminder for everyone, the article that we're gonna be taking a look at is Pre-Hospital Intervention Improves Outcomes for Patients Presenting an Atrial Fibrillation with Rapid Ventricular Response, that's a mouthful, published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. And as always, our discussion will be paired with a Journal Watch article in EMS World written by our very own Michael Caduce. And I encourage you all to go check that out. It's at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And thank you to all of those who are joining us live today. I see we've got quite a crowd. So as we begin, just to remind all of you listeners, you can use the chat feature on your screen, type questions and comments into the discussion, and I will be bringing those in as we go. Um, So with that, let's kick off. I would like to first welcome again our authors. So thank you, Louis, thank you, Lawrence, for joining us today. Um, I think it would be wonderful for our audience if before we dive into the paper at hand, if we could just hear a little bit about who you are, what you do, and I'm curious about how you got interested in the space of EMS research. So, Lewis, let's go ahead and start with you.
2: Yeah. Um, thanks for this uh, opportunity. This is, this is awesome. Um, so, uh, my name is Louis Sprenage. I'm an ER uh, physician in Houston. Uh, I'm uh, board certified in emergency medicine and uh, emergency and medical services. Um, I have been involved in EMS, uh, since I was in college, uh, stay involved during my uh, medical school training as well too. And I feel like, uh, there were wonderful clinical opportunities that I absolutely enjoy in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, but I felt like there were even more opportunities that still, um, were available with regards to bringing the research that was being published and introduced to the world of emergency medicine and bringing that one step forward to the pre-hospital setting. And so as soon as I finished, completed my fellowship training in, uh, in EMS, I started looking for opportunities and came across my, my first big one was, uh, was this one, actually, with uh, the ESO Research Symposium. Um, and overall just very, it was very accessible. It was easy to meet some, uh, wonderful folks who do a lot of work, uh, in this, in this area. Um, and it's led to great opportunities.
1: Awesome. And we are so glad that you're here and glad that you were able to take on a research project like this. Um, very fortunate that you're sharing your time with us. So thank you. And I will turn it over to Lawrence. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do why you got into EMS research.
3: Thanks, Emily. So uh, I'm Lawrence Brown. My real job is I am the director of research education for the Department of Surgery and Perioperative Care at the Dell Medical School here in Austin, Texas. Uh, But I am a paramedic by vocation, or at least I was. I started life as a paramedic in Eastern North Carolina Uh, originally as a volunteer, and then eventually in a uh, paid organization. And it was there that I got involved in research. I had started working for uh, our local division of EMS, the medical director's office. And it was affiliated with East Carolina University. And so those physicians had to do research as part of their job. And so that's where I got involved in research and found that I had uh, an affinity for it and an interest in it. And I was working with people who uh, supported me and uh, helped me learn how to do that. And that's how I first got involved. Well, and
1: we're lucky to have you here who now supports so many others. And Lawrence is very humble. He'll never tell you, but he literally wrote the book on EMS research. What might be what Dave Page was hopping in to say.
4: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh amazing to have the the expert of uh, with us and i you know he's very humble so i i really don't uh uh don't think he's gonna you know uh toot his own horn but um lawrence has been a board member for the pcrf for years and uh actually was teaching workshops uh with baxter larman at conferences when I, it was just a twinkle in everybody's eye. so Um, it's absolutely a a pleasure and an honor to have him on. So don't be shy and, and do please, uh, when you get, uh, into kind of the, how did this paper come about? Talk a little bit about the workshop itself.
1: Well, why not? Let's just go straight there. I think we're ready to dive in. So let's talk about, you know, how did this project come about and specifically the workshop, but also the topic, like, how do we know that this thing is important and not studied?
2: Yeah. Um, I think this was definitely one of the highlights of the uh, the ESO research workshop. Um, uh, it was a it was very easy to come up with uh, folks that had common interest, and um, this is a topic that we all had um, questions about. I think these questions stem from the fact that when uh, we uh, uh, talked about this uh, and further looked into it. We noticed that there really wasn't a whole lot of there was no significant consensus on pre-hospital management of atrial fibrillation, especially um, uh, for patients who were in um, uh, who had a rapid rapid ventricular rate. Um, And so this is also where. Uh, the platforms such as ESO, who had um, additional hospital data, uh, would also help contribute to answering this question. Um, up until uh, up until recently, we really only had a few studies here and there with a dozen, maybe a hundred at the most um, patients, where they were just looking at whether or not treatment was effective in the field, but no one had the resources to really look at how these patients were doing once they were uh, hitting the hospital doors, once they were admitted as well to uh, as well. So uh, this, uh, the workshop itself really gave us the tools to look from point A in terms of that initial contact to uh, point B being the the discharge for some of these patients, which again, just had not been done up until now.
1: Absolutely. And for those who aren't as familiar with this PCRF workshop strategy, this is a Dave Page would call this the speed dating for research approach. It is three days. And prior to those three days, Lewis and his team didn't necessarily have this question fully hatched out. And in the period of those three days together with an amazing team that included Lawrence as the statistician, were able to hone in on this analysis and complete the bones of a peer-reviewed abstract, which has since been published elsewhere and presented as well, isn't that right, Liz?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. Um, And again, there's been a lot of interest in this question by many other folks throughout the country. So I think that this workshop really helped um, not only galvanize the interest uh, initially, but also be a catalyst to being able to bring all this information to, to the rest of the community.
4: I want to give a shout out to <clears throat> this wouldn't be possible if we didn't have amazing data scientists that uh, have a connection to HDE health outcomes, right? Um, so when you were in the room debating about which um, what, what you would study, one of the greatest advantages we have that is truly very unique in this business and ESO is a sponsor, and I'm sure Dr. Crow is going to be very restrained about how uh, wonderful she speaks about ESO, but it was really not just that we met there, it was that they have connected health outcomes and we can know what happened to the pre-hospital patient. And that was, that's really unique, right? That propelled us to be able to, uh, to do projects that we'd never been able to do before.
1: Absolutely. And I'm excited to dig into this one in particular, and I know that's why our audience is here. So to remind the audience at home of what this paper's objective was, the authors were comparing those outcomes of patients who presented to EMS with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, (AFRVR) who did and did not receive specifically pre-hospital advanced life support rate or rhythm control interventions. And before we dive into the results, I wanna invite Dr. Fernandez up here to discuss a little bit about the methods. So before we interpret a finding, it is really important that we have a good understanding of where the study came from and how it was conducted. So Tony, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Let's talk a little bit about those methods.
5: Well, thank you, Dr. Crow, And I wanna thank uh, Lewis and uh, Lawrence for being here today. This is uh, by far one of my favorite studies that has come out of the research forum. Um, I really love this one. So I'm excited to talk about it with everyone. So let's dive right in. Uh, so Remly just told us about your objective and can you tell us, I, I know this data set, right? It's, it's, it's a large data set. How did you go about um, finding patients that you wanted to include in the study?
3: So we defined um, AFib with RVR as uh, a documented EKG interpretation, first EKG of atrial fibrillation, and a heart rate greater than or equal to 110 beats per minute. And we base that on some previous uh, guidelines that have been developed uh, on on uh, atrial fibrillation care. We did, be, you know, the charts are tricky, um, we did require that those two things be time-stamped within 15 minutes of each other. So if somebody had for example, an initial heart rate of 150 when EMS showed up, but they didn't get the EKG until 20 minutes later, we dropped those people out. So we made sure that they were roughly occurring at the same time. Uh, We excluded people who were very young or very old, uh, over 100. Um, We excluded people who were either hyperthermic or hypothermic, which might have indicated some underlying medical thing other than their afib going on particularly sepsis and we didn't include people who were strictly trauma patients there had to be some medical component um, to to their uh presentation
5: yeah and I think that those were a lot of really good decisions I really um like the the timestamp uh decision you made I think that that's um that's really novel and having a bunch of smart people in a room together to hash this out, I think that uh, probably went a long way in helping you identify um, that important important decision.
3: Yeah, and just on that real quickly, um, it was having a lot of smart people in the room. It's one of the great things about these ESO workshops. Lewis and I get to be here, uh, but in the room were uh, Christy O'Neill from Utah, who's an EMS educator, we had Steven Docker from Michigan, who's an EMS researcher and a medical student. We had uh, Eric Wanta, who's an EMT from Wisconsin, and Ryan Lewis, who's a paramedic supervisor uh, from North Carolina. And it was really critical having all of those different perspectives and figuring out, gee, who are the right patients to have in this study?
5: Absolutely. Um. That yeah. That those are those are some great parts of the of the research forums as well. Just getting to conversate with folks uh, from similar backgrounds but varying backgrounds for sure. Um. And come up with these great decisions. Uh. So let's talk about your primary outcome measure. So your 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 primary outcome measure was discharge to home from the ED. Um. But you did look at some pre-hospital specific measures, and then you had uh. You looked at ED length of stay. Um. <clears throat> can you talk to us about Uh, Some of the pre hospital measures
3: that you looked at? Yeah, so um, the obvious one was rate control achieved by the time the patient got to the emergency department. But we also looked at any pre hospital adverse events, and particularly we looked at bradycardia, we looked at hypotension, and we looked at any cardiac arrest. Um, And uh, we also kind of subclassified those as events that. Uh, were transient that resolved by the time the patient got to uh the emergency department
5: yeah I thought that was really interesting the way you defined uh the non the classified as transient or non-transient as well as uh, you looked at differences uh for adverse events that occurred before or after the intervention I think that gives us a really good look at uh at what actually happened uh to the patients that you're evaluating so yeah
3: that that was I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but for example, um, one of the, one of the adver- ad- adverse events being hypotension, you know, patients are dynamic. And it turned out that a lot of the people who got treated had become hypotensive, but they became hypotensive before the treatment. So even though we lumped those in as adverse events, clearly it wasn't caused by the medication. It was probably more an indication for the intervention
5: very interesting stuff so your independent variables you were talking you're just talking a little bit about your medications and you looked at uh rate arrhythmic control medications specifically calcium channel blockers beta blockers and antiarrhythmics and you have a whole list um that is provided in your supplementary table which i think is great because folks wanted to right, research you want to be able to replicate it and you made that really easy for other investigators uh i want to personally thank you for that that's really that's really cool um in addition, you looked at some other independent variables, age, uh, race, and ethnicity. Um, these are uh, these are some really important decisions that uh, what independent variables you're going to look at, what vital signs you're going to look at. Um, can you take us through some, and you can't look at everything, right? Um, can you take us through some of the decision making and how you picked out these independent variables of interest?
3: Sure. And and this was part and parcel of a technique that we used called propensity score matching. Um, Whether somebody gets treated for their AFib is driven by a lot of different things. It's driven by their clinical circumstances, um, but it's also driven by, for example, agency level factors, what interventions an agency has available, what the local agency's protocols are. And ideally, in a study of a therapy, you would want to do a randomized trial. Um, And that would be great. We couldn't do that with this data set. This technique of propensity matching tries to replicate the um, circumstances of a randomized trial. And you do that by looking at all of those things that might confound the relationship between treatment and outcome. And so that includes demographic things, age, sex, race. That includes things, uh, clinical things, like you're presenting heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, classical coma scale. It includes your history. Do you take an anticoagulant or not? Do you have a history of AFib or not? Are you presenting with respiratory distress or are you presenting with chest pain? Um, And then do you have a history of heart disease, renal disease. And so we really had to just brainstorm all the things that we thought we needed to be thinking about that might muddy the relationship between treatment and outcome. And then we looked at all of those things just in the raw data to see if there really was an association or not. And then if there was an association, basically if there was more than a a 10% difference between the treated group and the untreated group. We then used those variables that are actually listed in table three of the paper if people are looking at it to match patients one-to-one so that we got a treated patient who was 47 years old and male and black and had a history of AFib and we matched them to a not exactly the same patient but a patient of a similar age race sex and medical history to try to wipe out any differences uh, or any association in the outcome that would be associated with the differences between those two groups of patients
5: yep and that's that is a lot of hard work uh, I just you can't emphasize enough to our audience uh, how much went into that decision making um that's that that's great. And you also you you accounted for some facility level effects. Um, and I think that this this part was just genius, right? Because so in my mind, there's uh, whether you can give a certain medication or how you treat a patient, a lot of that is not really uh, determined so much by the individual paramedic but by the system. and and can you can you talk to us about how you how you accounted for that in your study? Uh, well, not
3: as well as I would have liked to, to be honest. Um, but it makes sense, right? So you think about um, an EMS system. If it's a big system, probably serves multiple hospitals, but those hospitals probably only receive patients from one EMS system. So, or at least many of them. So, if a hospital is has a, a particular practice about admitting or discharging AFib patients or um, different sensibilities about length of stay once a patient is admitted, that might be causing the results that we see having nothing to do with whether the patient was treated in the field or not. And so somehow we had to overlay on this analysis, okay, what is the underlying hospital practice? Um for each of these patients that are received. And we did that two ways. The first thing we did is we tried to match patients that went to the same hospital so that uh, we were trying to match treated patients and untreated patients transported to the same hospital. Turned out that was really hard to do and not very many patients could be matched that way because it's really an EMS system level decision whether to treat or not, but we tried to do that. The other thing we did is we just looked at, okay, independent of whether they were treated or not, if we look at all of the AFib patients that went to hospital X, what was their, what proportion of them were generally admitted or discharged? What was their average length of stay? Things that might have been driven by hospital level characteristics. And what we found is whether hospitals received a lot of treated patients or not very many treated patients at all; those things were actually pretty steady across all of the hospitals. So any individual hospital might admit more patients or discharge more patients or have longer lengths of stay, but overall, in the wash, the, the average was actually pretty much the same across all of the hospitals. It, it's a it was a real conundrum to try to sort through. It's like how do we be sure? How do we make sure this is not a hospital level effect? And um, we think we we got that covered. We could be wrong, but we think we've got it.
5: Well, and one of the things that I really love, and it's like uh, you queued this up for me, is when, so we do research, right? Well, one of the reasons we do this research is we're looking for the truth, right? We want to know what happens to these patients and what works. Um, And in order to do that, not only did you do your your uh, your uh, initial analysis, but you ran some sub analyses or some sem- sensitivity analyses where you restricted to a certain population of patients. Um, the first one you looked at uh, heart rates above 150 beats per minute. Um, in your 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 second sensitivity analysis, you looked at folks with confirmed AFib in the ED or by hospital diagnosis code. Um, And then you looked specifically at adverse events rates amongst patients who didn't have um, an AFib diagnosis. And those are all, it really, like the nuance there, I think is really important. Why why did you feel it was so important to do these these three uh, sensitivity or sub-analyses? Well, so...
3: My general approach to data analysis is to be a skeptic and to always wonder, how are these data trying to mislead me? Um, You know, what you don't want to do as a researcher is just find the result that you want to find and say, okay, I'm happy, Uh, right? We're really trying to test the null hypothesis. We're trying to do everything we can to prove we're wrong. And so that's what we did is we said, okay, We found this, this is great, but wait a minute, maybe we're using the wrong definition for AFib. Some other papers had used a heart rate of 150. To me, that's super fast, but okay, let's use that and see if we get the same results. And we get roughly the same results, not exactly. What if the paramedics are calling it AFib and it's not really AFib? Okay, well, let's look at patients where the hospital said it's AFib. And we get roughly the same results and so forth. So, I mean, this is really something I encourage everybody to do with every analysis, to think through, like, you don't want to go crazy. You don't want to say, okay, well, what if it's Tuesday and I stand on my left leg and close my right eye? You don't don't want to go to that extent. But you do want to reasonably think through, geez, how could these data be misleading me? And how can I convince myself that's not the case?
5: Yeah, that's a, a wonderful strategy, and I I always have the the difficult task of holding us up from getting to these wonderful results um, that are so interesting. But what I uh, there's a couple things that I think we need to just define um, for our 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 audience here um, because it'll be important as we go through the results. So can you give us a, a really uh, high level definition of the uh, average treatment effect on uh, or on the treated? as high level as we can go here?
3: Yeah, it is. Um, so so it is the difference between the treated group and the untreated group after we match and take into account the differences in age, sex, race, presenting symptoms and all that stuff. They say, okay, evening out all of that stuff, what's the difference between the two groups?
5: And the... Um... This was my, I love it. this was my favorite part reading these the uh, results for the number needed to treat. Uh, can can you what 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 does that mean for our our, our budding researchers?
3: Um, I love number needed to treat because it's a really clinically useful measure, and it is the number of patients you need to treat with your intervention to get one more good outcome than you otherwise would. And that it's it's an important It's not one good outcome. It's one more good outcome than what you would otherwise get. So, um, just for it's not these numbers, but if you said a number needed to treat of 10, that could mean that if you treat 10 patients without the intervention, you get six good outcomes. And if you treat 10 patients with the intervention, you get seven good outcomes. And so, the smaller the number needed to treat is, the more clinically useful. Um, the intervention is. And I think Lewis will speak to um, how our numbers needed to treat, line up with some other things that we commonly do in EMS that we believe are clinically useful. Um, And our numbers are the same or better uh, than some of those interventions.
5: Well, I will not hold us up from getting to the results anymore, but I would like to open it up to any of our other panelists. Um, If they have any methods related questions, Otherwise, let's let's dive into these results. They're fascinating.
1: I agree. I am also looking forward very much to the results and I'm gonna invite Jeff. I know he has a couple of questions to get us kicked off with. So Jeff, why don't you take us away?
6: Hello, great to have you all on and uh, definitely looking forward to talking about this study. Excellent work both of you and we certainly appreciate you sharing this research with us. So figure one, I think, is a really nice overview of just showing the uh, extent of this ESO data set and how we have just a ton of EMS calls of 911 scene responses and transports. And you do a really good job in this flow chart, just breaking it down with our large population to our actual subjects. So if you don't mind just walking us through um, from the top down to the bottom, where we kind of narrow in on the data that we're actually looking at. Dr. Brown or Dr. Fornich, um if either of you wouldn't mind just kind of quickly running through those exclusions and then showing us how we came to our final numbers.
3: Lewis, I'm getting a horse. You do it.
2: Sure. Um... Yeah, so I think uh, this was really the uh, the most important part here is uh, summarized um, or summarizing the fact that we didn't want to uh, include folks that would be inappropriately uh, treated with some of these intervention. Right, um, clinically speaking, for anyone who's in AFib with RVR, um, we are looking at first and foremost if there's a reversible cause. You want to take that out of the equation because there's no point in slowing someone's heart rate down and um, trying to improve the number um, and leaving that trigger in place. So, um, and and again, we obviously want to treat patients with AFib in the first place. So um, that's how we got to these first two levels, starting from um, starting from the top, and then as uh, Dr. Brown mentioned. Um, Obviously, we're now, or uh, we were interested in the uh, folks with RVR, so that's where we applied our uh, um, uh, our criteria to be able to identify those patients in this uh, in this chart review. Uh, and then during the second half of this, we're really getting a better sense of the uh, 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 the interpretation, um, uh, a visual interpretation of what the density score matching does, and. Uh, when, uh, again, I was fairly, fairly new to all these, um, terms, concepts, I certainly understood some of the basics, but definitely not at the level that everyone else um, here on the, the panel is used to dealing with. But, um, I was a little bit concerned about, uh, the fact that we would lose a lot of our patients with, um, this, this, uh, this technique, um, to try to get them, get them matched. But, um, again, when we compare the numbers of folks who were, um uh, who had a form of intervention? The four thousand nine hundred and forty-eight. Um, we really didn't lose a whole um, a whole lot. Um, we just uh, dipped down to four thousand eight hundred and fifty-nine. Um, and then the second part here again emphasizes the importance of uh, of this paper. I would argue with the uh, the fact that we had these outcome data uh, sets available as well too. Uh, and I think that this is something that maybe we're we're gonna touch on later on, but um, that uh, reduced our uh, sample size quite a bit um, by about 25%, about a quarter. Uh, but this is something that's dynamic. Uh, more and more hospitals, DMS services um, are contributing to it. And um, one of the things that might be interesting over time is just seeing how um, our information that we, uh, the conclusions that we got to change as we get more and more of this uh, of this uh, data available going forward. Thank Absolutely. you. That was a really-
1: I, I want to dive in here for one second. Something that sticks out a lot in this figure one to me, and it goes with Teresa's question that I think I'll bring in now as well, is of those almost 39,000 patients with AFib or AVR, uh, only about 5,000 received one of the treatment interventions that this paper was focused on. So that's something like almost 13%, maybe. And I'm wondering, did this finding surprise you all as a team? And a comment from Teresa that might also come into play here is that, you know, is there any indication of whether or not a patient was stable versus unstable? And maybe that could explain some of this difference that we're seeing, and that only about 13% of patients got one of the interventions of interest.
2: Um, I'll at least say from my personal experience, um, I've had contacts, clinical contacts with, uh, providers, with EMS providers in, uh, Texas in an area that's fairly, uh, that's fairly, um, uh, progressive in terms of their uh, protocols for EMS. Um, I had some experience for a couple of years in North Carolina, uh, and in Missouri, um, these results didn't necessarily surprise me by the end of all of this um, because I was shocked to meet a lot of folks. Um, again, originally, I thought everyone had to be treated as soon as your heart rate was was elevated um, at the beginning of my pre, pre-hospital and medical career. And then as the years went on, I met more and more people who basically told me, well, you know, if they're asymptomatic essentially and they just have a high heart rate well the hospital will just take care of them i don't need to worry about it and that that kind of nonchalance was a little bit frustrating and surprising Uh, again having come from places that were a little bit more aggressive um and especially knowing that there are other interventions that significantly improve patient outcomes if we start them at point of contact and we're talking about things like positive pressure ventilation like cpap um uh, now more recently, blood administration for various patients, especially trauma patients, as well to uh, steroids and in, uh, in asthma, for example. So um, I guess I wasn't surprised uh, necessarily. Uh, and I'll let Dr. Brown kind of touch on more um, the side of uh, getting a better sense of what that pop- both of those populations look like. Yeah, so it's
3: a, it's a great point, and it, it leads into that discussion we were having earlier about why patients get treated isn't just random here. And so absolutely sicker patients were more likely to get treated than super stable patients. And uh, one of the, yeah, and you can see that here. If you look at, for example, just the average heart rate of the treated and untreated patients for the, the treated patients, it was almost 160 for the untreated patients, 130. Well, that's a big difference, and so so maybe that partially explains who got treated and who didn't. And so part of the point of that propensity score matching was to say, okay, let's select equally tachycardic groups of patients and equally hypotensive groups of patients and equally, um, not very many of them were hypoxic, but equal equal levels of Um, oxygen saturation in both groups. So essentially what we did was we kind of carved out the super stable patients and set those aside and limited the analysis to people who were sick enough to warrant treatment.
6: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense here because we have, again, a pretty large population. One of the huge strengths of your study that we have large numbers, but we know that that treatment was not at all random. So I think your table one makes a great case for why we need your propensity score adjusting. So kind of moving along, um, we could move to the next table and we could actually take a quick look and see what it looks like. So we have our unadjusted outcomes, but Probably don't want to spend too much time on them since we already know these populations are quite different, different ages, different, um, different proportions of conditions that could definitely affect it. So want to move down to the next table, actually. And here we could see um, looking at these treated and untreated, uh, both for those that we have hospital outcomes and those that we don't, and we're just looking at pre-hospital rate controls. It's amazing, almost everything looks nearly identical. Was there anything that stood out at you? I mean, is this exactly what you expected or um, think you could have done better or this was even better than you expected?
3: This is what's supposed to happen. Yeah. This is the goal, right? Um, And if we had found leftover things that were not equal, we would have had to then do some additional statistical balancing to deal with that. But this is how propensity score matching works. Um, It is the idea. And uh, so that's why we include that table. This table basically says what we did work.
6: Yeah, exactly. You've definitely proved that here. And I think seeing that and now seeing, building that case for P scores, we can now move along to our adjusted um, results, our table four. And here is really, you could see those differences between those untreated and treated parent patients. So what stood out at you the most of these? Um, I know some findings were more significant than others. Um, Is there anything you want to point us to right away? I mean, we could see, I guess my first interest as a paramedic was, do these interventions work? And are we able to achieve rate control in the pre-hospital setting?
2: Yeah, Uh, I think that that was uh, the first step that we wanted to make sure uh, we had an answer for. Um, And in line with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the main other study preceding ours that hinted towards efficacy or suggested efficacy was by Dr. Uh, Henry Wang back in 2002, mm-hmm. um, where he actually had two comparison groups um, as well too with, uh, with about 40 people, um, and really no one had looked at this um, uh, since then, but. Uh, Yeah. So uh, these results show that we, that it, it does work. There was a significant difference in terms of um, these two populations. And this is where Dr. Brown mentioned, um, you know, we really had an exciting result is uh, for this uh, group uh, or for this um, variable or for this outcome that we were looking at um, our uh, number to treat, uh, or results translated into a number to treat that was very impressively low. Again, here the lower the better. Um, and for comparison, clinically speaking, the the other number to treat that I feel I had either talked about a lot or been exposed to quite a bit was aspirin. Um, it's really kind of the knee jerk thing that every single provider out there will do. Right, chest pain, you get an aspirin. Chest pain, you get an aspirin. Um, and we're looking at a number to treat from my recollection to be in the 40s to 50s for uh, for those. Um, regardless, we are what, what ends up being a whole order of magnitude smaller um, than that. Um, so... Again, certainly there's limitations with, with doing these retrospective type studies, but um, I think that we're, this is the, the most exciting result that, that we have and that we wanted to, to highlight for, uh, for this paper. The, uh, the other thing that I think is important to just touch on as well too is, um, again, during our conversation as a group, uh, we felt like it might be interesting to look at uh, the length of stays that uh, patients will then subsequently have if they get transported to um, to the ER and if they get admitted as well too. Um, for that, we did not have um, we did not find a significant difference between both groups. Um, I, I think the idea of looking at these metrics were certainly. Uh, were certainly good um, at their core um, unfortunately this is something that um, this data set might not be the best at being able to fully tease out and I don't think that it's fair to hold this against the intervention and the way that we we built this. Um, because once you, once that patient gets dropped off, there are so many things like we we're touching on about earlier as well too, that, uh, will happen based on hospital or ED preferences, um, ED policies, I should say, um, hospital preferences. Once f- folks get admitted, uh, for example, there's a checklist that they just have to go through, talk to a cardiologist, get an echo, things like that. If it's the weekend, well, you're going to have to wait two days sometimes depending on the facility that you work at. And so, uh, we did not find... A significant difference there. but um, again, that's really something that should be looked at um, with more access to the uh, uh, to what had happened at, in the hospital versus uh, the information that we readily had available um, through the health data exchange.
1: And that point is really important. I want to highlight what you said and why it's so important that you all have this variety of outcomes. Um, We were just at another research forum in Utah this weekend, and this concept came up a lot about how close is the outcome to what was happening during the EMS encounter. And as we get further away from things that happened during the EMS encounter, it's not necessarily surprising to see that the effect size changes, because like you mentioned, there's a lot of things that, after we hit the ED doors are not within our control. And that would be very different between facility and facility and even between patient and patient. So it's nice that these researchers included a measure that happens in the pre-hospital setting that is obviously very tightly related to the EMS care, as well as these more longitudinal or lagging indicators like mortality or, or getting discharged home or the length of stay. So having multiple lenses within a research project is really valuable. Um, And we do have some questions from the audience. I want to make sure that we have time to bring them in. And so uh, both of these questions from uh, Jay and from Bill are somewhat related, but the, the concept is, okay, well, which interventions are we using and which one of those interventions is the most effective? And I don't think that we said this during the beginning, but the most common medication given in this case was diltiazim. But... Uh, Any comments from you all in terms of were you able to look at specific interventions? Was there any desire to do so? Was that included in this analysis or perhaps
3: not? So we did not do that in this analysis, Um, but this is primarily a study of Diltiaism. That was, I don't know the exact number, but more than 80% of these interventions uh, were Diltiaism. And so there's really not enough of the others to make any meaningful um, interpretation of of beta blockers or cardioversion or whatever else. We have since this just limited the analysis to diltiaism and we get the same results essentially as we get in our other sensitivity analyses. The difference in discharge home, the point estimate is the same, but the confidence interval gets wider because the sample size goes down by about 20%. So it's not statistically significant anymore, but the direction of the effect is the same. The effect on pre-hospital rate control and mortality remains significant.
1: Important to keep in mind and definitely other space for study. Um, There is another audience question around Uh, MAG being studied as a synergistic medication, and maybe, Lewis, I wonder if you've had any thoughts on this or know of systems using this. I know it wasn't in this particular study, but um, out of curiosity and what's going on in pre-hospital care.
2: Yeah, there's been some studies uh, that have looked at magnesium uh, administration. Um, Actually, in other countries, they've had studies where they were just only giving MAG by itself. and they had some improvement. Uh, there was a prior paper that had looked into this. Now, again, this is a long time ago by Dr. Slovis. Um, again, I think we're talking about early 2000s. Um, since then, um, again, really in terms of mainstays and recommendations from uh, associations like the American College of Cardiology and emergency medicine groups, um, We haven't seen as much of those administrations and uh, reach into the standard of care. So um, it tends to be, uh, in my experience, it tends to be if there is a magnesium deficiency, they will repeat it and address it. Um, But I I don't know that it's necessarily widespread to be looking at magnesium, um, even as a a co-administered medication, or at least not uh, common enough to be Uh, to have been something that we necessarily included in this this review, in this analysis.
1: Absolutely. And good research often makes more research questions. So something that can definitely be studied in the future. Um, And while we're still on interventions, one more question that I'm shocked hasn't come up, so I'm just gonna bring it in is, what about the vagal maneuvers? I think Lawrence is waiting for you. Lewis. Did you guys look at uh, vagal maneuvers? Why or why not? What did you find?
6: Yeah,
2: um, we did. If I'm if I'm not if I'm remembering correctly, I think one of the issues that we ran into was also the documentation aspect of it, though. Um, just because it's not something that's easily checkmarked in terms of um, being available um, in the the PCR so part of that data might have been um, might have been included just in an area that was not easily extractable um, it might have been uh, brought into the uh, the narrative portion of it um, and then uh, just the other thing to keep in mind is that it is something that does not require EMS intervention so folks who unfortunately do flip um, uh, in and out of afib could have tried doing it but they didn't tell EMS about it and so it was just something that was, um, difficult to to accurately capture in, in any case as well, too.
3: Yeah, and I would just add to that. This this was something we worked through in the workshop, um, and it's why we decided to describe our study as a study of advanced life support interventions, right? So vagal maneuvers are arguably a basic life support intervention. But, but the point is the documentation was really sketchy. I would argue that if someone is giving Diltiazem, and certainly if somebody's getting cardioverted, that probably means vagal maneuvers failed. I would hope those were tried first in most of those cases, at least if the patients were not already super hypotensive, um, but that was very rarely documented. We did actually match on that, though, in the propensity score matching. So again, um, the proportion of patients that had documented fatal, vagal maneuvers is the same in both groups.
1: Yes, and I think that's worth looking at. And now I've seen uh, Bill Toons had his hand up for a moment. so Bill, let's have your question.
0: So if you could go back to your uh, potentiality match group, who what was that group made? Where'd that come from that group? was it a was it from the ESO database? I'm I was just a little confused uh, and I couldn't rushing through my uh, the paper and stuff I couldn't clearly understand that. I was just curious about that.
3: Yes, all of, all of these patients are from the ESO data set. So, so we're not matching across different data sets. These are all patients who were encountered by an agency submitting data to ESO with AFib with RVR who either did or did not get treated.
0: Thanks.
1: Excellent, and Michael.
2: And this may get us, this may be a decent transition into table five, but from an educational standpoint, we oftentimes tell our paramedics that it's usually a more dire conditions that we're going to be treating a patient AFib. Do you think this research and this paper demonstrates with this low number needed to treat and even the low mortality number needed to treat that we should be teaching our paramedics to be more aggressive in their administration of, or just treatment of AFib with RVR? Uh, I think we'll you'll probably have different answers if you ask different providers um, going forward i I think this study um, reinforces that belief for me um the uh, again while we're uh, getting this paper ready read a lot of other existing literature um, in a uh, actually a chapter of uh, or um, basically a, a textbook for AFib. Uh, some of the folks out of um, Seattle basically emphasizes the fact that, you know, paramedics are uh, allow that ER care to be delivered at home, right? Um, they're extenders of that uh, emergency care system. Um, if we're going to be treating these patients with the exact same medications, to me, it never made a lot of sense to wait an extra 30, 40 minutes down the road um, uh, for them to start treatment. Now, again, uh, I'm glad you brought up this education component because this is certainly basically the next step taking this data or acting on this data. Um, there certainly needs to be a, we need to make sure that we're doing a good job at explaining which patients need these interventions in, in the first place. But in folks who are appropriately selected, and again, this has been shown in other in some other papers as well too. In folks who have been appropriately selected and who for whom there's an uh, a protocol that has clear inclusion exclusion criteria, that there's an appropriate um, service uh, education um, that goes into preparing medics to to take care of these patients, um, we minimize the risk of adverse um, of adverse events. Um, and again, this this table highlights um, some of these points for sure.
6: Yeah, I, th- I think this table definitely shows that um, s- that some of these adverse events definitely happen, but they're not as common as we would think. And in trying to wrap us up and thinking about the policy implications and what do we do with this, this is definitely amazing research, you've definitely made that case for propensity scores, but what's next. And I'm thinking about the actual um, implications when it comes to our clinical operating guidelines and our EMS protocols. And I know there are many um, uh, interventions which we do, which we have standing orders for, for example, vagal maneuvers or um, or cardioversion if the patient is extremely unstable. But I also know in many systems, cardism or diltiazem often requires a medical order from a physician. So online medical control because of this fear that, oh, it'll take their pressure and, oh, why not just wait? You know, if they become super critical, then you cardiovert them. But for now, just watch them and they'll deal with it at the ER. But based on this, we could see that, yes, hypotension happens, but but it's usually pretty brief. Uh, doesn't really tend to be um, non-transient. That's super uncommon. But I was wondering if you have any recommendations for potentially medical directors that might be on this call or paramedics that are involved in protocol committees and trying to decide, should we move this from, you know, online medical control only to to standing orders?
2: Yeah. um, Again, I've uh worked and looked at uh protocols where this this was a standing order um so it's certainly feasible um the uh i think even more importantly than just the rates of uh persistent uh hypotension uh i think looking at the fact that this uh this adverse effect doesn't lead to any significant changes in really the, the biggest concern we have is, you know, you will permanently harm the patient. So things like cardiac arrest um, are, those rates are, are unchanged as well too. I think that that's really kind of linking all these these adverse events together. And again, demonstrating that safety profile. Um, again, I, I think that there, there's probably a lot more that would go into those recommendations to, to, change protocols. But, um, I think one of the big things to remember as well, too, is nowadays we built much more robust QAQI programs, um, across the nation. There are more and more BMS fellowship trained physicians that hopefully are, um, you know, also progressive minded and, and want to move the needle forward. Um, I would argue that this is a lot simpler change than, um, for example, implementing a blood program um, in a service, right? There's a little smaller cost to being able to implement this intervention. Yet again, if you have a blood program and you wouldn't um, if you don't have access to this, for example, uh, the marginal cost is going to be getting access to the medications, for example, if you don't carry them. But again, the QAQI side of things, the education side of things. Uh, Is certainly there. Same thing for um, for intubations. We've moved towards video laryngoscopy and a lot of services. Again, these are reviewed cases. Um, So the infrastructure is there. Uh, It's just a matter of again being able to provide this information, have it in a succinct package, to be able to bring it to these committees, to these groups, and say, look, sure. I mean, there's always going to be bad outcomes. The name of the game is to minimize the the frequency of these events. And uh, again, we have the systems in place for it and look, turns out they're not happening that often and we're not coming across these large amounts of patients who are getting harmed by this intervention as long as it's done in a, um, in a supervised manner.
6: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And then just wanna bring in one more audience question. Bill Robertson is asking about um, hypotension as a possible contraindication in protocols, which do allow standing orders, for example. But we also know that hypotension could be an effect of somebody who has such a rapid artery rate from that very rapid AFib. So he was asking your thoughts on cartizim, on sorry, diltiazem um, and potentially still utilizing it in these cases, since we've seen based on this study that non-transient hypotension, pretty similar in both groups.
5: Yeah,
2: um, so that's certainly maybe a situation where I'd maybe still loop in uh, medical control. Uh, that is, uh, that's a good point, though. I've certainly had my fair share of patients, and I've heard of similar situations where, um, with that rate being slowed down, they actually noticed a paradoxical increase in that um, uh, in that uh, blood pressure reading. Now, again, I think we're getting into more of these these unique patients, and I don't think that they would easily lend themselves to being uh, included in a protocol but the other thing to keep in mind is that there's uh, like we were looking at there are other agents that can be used in situations like that where there is actually hypotension that we do actually carry as well too and maybe looping those in may not be a bad idea um, so for example thinking of then uh, a caveat for, for um, or again treating the hypotension first seeing if it holds and then maybe considering uh, some form of rate agent or again Honestly, this is kind of the the situation where we do we would want to rely maybe more on cardioversion if other factors align, such as the patient being anticoagulated and some of the other nuances there as well too. So maybe that would be the subset where I would keep medical direction still involved. But again, uh, the more stable patient, clinically stable patients with just an abnormal heart rate, I think, are the ones that we're low hanging um fruit in terms of patients that we can do something for and move their care um sooner and again going back to that table that prior table um we are looking at also increased discharges from the er that's probably the the other patient-centered metric that looks great um to keep in mind and mortality um those those are the folks that i think we should be focusing on trying to have those protocols be uh, updated
6: yeah, thanks for explaining. You definitely make that case. And just want to invite Dr. Toon. I saw you were there and now uh, you popped in. Welcome.
0: Yeah, just real quick. I have uh, just one more comment than anything else, but I do want to thank you for your time and the effort in this paper. That was quite wonderful. And I, to the audience as a whole, I don't think we should ever look at doing a consult with our Physician colleagues is a bad thing. You know, physicians in the ED consult other physicians. You know, and why shouldn't we consult? And I, I do believe the terminology needs to change. I don't think we should be do calling medical direction. I, don't, I think we should be going calling for a consult, just like a physician calls for a consult. And I think that may help steer us away from the negativity or the mother may aspect of it.
1: I think that is an important distinction, too, especially as we get into culture of safety and you know not hesitating to reach out to get a second opinion is important. Um, now, I have the truly enviable task of wrapping us up. An hour goes by really fast when it's such an important and exciting study. But I do want to thank our authors and give them an opportunity to leave us with some last thoughts or last words or anything else that you would like this audience to know before we go. Um, so, Louis, I'll start with you. Any Final high-level thought takeaway from this paper that you want to make sure that our audience has before we leave.
2: Uh, yeah, I think just two real quick. One, if you uh, notice uh, something that doesn't make sense, uh, dig into it. Um, look at the look at the data uh, or the lack thereof. Uh, uh, studies that have been done on a particular topic that you're interested in. Uh, Like I said, until I sat down with the with this group, um, with our group, um, I kind of had this suspicion that there was not a lot um, that had been uh, or or there's just so much variety with regards to this topic and how we manage these patients. And uh, I'm I'm so grateful to have been able to sit down and again, educate myself on the uh, previous literature uh, and uh, learn more about how this process works from a research standpoint as well, too. And then the second thing I wanted to say, uh, uh, again, um, I certainly, uh, through medical school, they try to get us to do more um, research. Uh, it was a valiant attempt, but uh, I'm nowhere near, again, the level of expertise that, that y'all are. This is a wonderful uh, podcast as well too and what y'all are doing is great um, for for us um, uh, for, for us professionals I would highly encourage every single uh, person who hears this podcast like I'm sure everyone has done in, in the past to um, reach out to y'all and consider going to this workshop Um uh, again I when I went I didn't have any academic affiliation or anything like that I was really kind of on my own um, I believe I was maybe the only physician that was there in that group uh, i made some great relationships with, within my group and um, outside of uh, this, this workshop group as well at, at ESO, um, and I'm just humbled by the things that I have learned in terms of, again, the process of uh, research uh, and the statistical analysis that goes behind this. Um, I could have never done anything close to this without um, the input of folks on this paneling, including Dr. Brown, and it's just great to also learned so much from um, how prehospital medicine gets practiced differently in different parts of the country. And that workshop brought all those things together. It was awesome. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you, Lewis. Certainly appreciate both the great advice to look at something critically when it doesn't make sense. And the words of encouragement for new researchers, I completely agree. Don't have to have any experience or expertise to join one of these research workshops and find out, is this something I would love to be part of? Um, Next one will be in September in Austin, and so we'll have registrations open for that really soon. Keep an eye out on the PCRF website, and I will turn it over to Lawrence for any last words, thoughts, words of wisdom, uh, existential crises, whatever it might be. We'll we'll let you have that last word, and then I will take us out of here because I know people have places
3: to go. Thanks, Remley, and thank you for having us. Um, I'm gonna say, Two almost completely conflicting things, the first one answering the last comment in the chat, and then the last one being a caveat, which is um, historically, I think one of the hesitancies about particularly deltaism, but just treatment for AFib has been, well, it might cause hypotension or something bad, and I don't really see the benefit of treating it earlier. These data now show that there is a benefit of treating it earlier. And it's a small enough benefit that any one person probably wouldn't perceive it. But when we put all of these data together, you can see it. There's, you know, a a 4% difference in discharge to home or whatever the, actually it's 8%, Um, you know, so that's important. And maybe for those of you who are trying to get your protocols and formularies changed, this will help um, assuage some of the concerns that physicians have. Now, having said that, this is one study and we love our study. We think our study is great, but no single study should ever completely convince you of anything, even mine. Um, there's always room for additional studies, either more retrospective studies in Different populations are using different inclusion and exclusion criteria, or hopefully at some point, a prospective randomized trial. Um, But we always want studies that ask the same question and give us multiple studies with answers to draw our inferences from. So um, as much as we love this study, uh, this is not the end all and be all of this question
1: important words of wisdom for sure and keeping us humble both as researchers and clinicians and ready to evolve as the science continues to evolve which is never ending Um, and we are at the end of our time together so I want to say thank you one more time to our authors who have generously shared their time with us thank you Lawrence thank you Lewis Uh, thank you to all of our panelists who have been so participative today and to our wonderful audience and those who will listen later on And with that, I look forward to seeing you all next time. Our education research podcast will be happening Friday, February 23rd, and the next clinical podcast, Monday, March 11th. So thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.
0: We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF journal club please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook, at PCRF at UCLA, and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, Providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.